Hello and welcome back to New Time Religion. You've probably noticed we've been gone for a few weeks. We took some time off for the holidays, but we are really excited to be back with another batch of episodes. Before we get going with today's episode, though, we have something exciting that we wanted to throw out there to our listeners. We have a fancy new hotline. Well, it's not really new. We've had it for a while now, but we have this hotline that you can call in and leave us questions that will hopefully someday make it on the show. Huge thanks to everybody who's already called in and left their questions. They were great, and we really appreciate it. For those of you who haven't called in or if you'd like to call in and leave another message, the number is 651-800-1089, and you can call and leave your message. The cool thing about it is we actually have some books to give away. Andy has graciously given up some of his books, and uh, if you leave an email or a phone number or some way that we can get a hold of you after your message, I'll reach out to you and make sure that you get a free copy of one of Andy's books as a thank you for calling in. So make sure to give us a call, leave us a message, and hopefully you'll hear yourself on a future episode. With that, here's another round of New Time Religion. There has to be someone culturally for us who keeps time. Someone has to keep time. Like we just we are we need someone kind of culturally to keep time for us. And so I think for most of Western Christendom, the institution, the collective that kept time was the church, that the church kept time for us. The church, in the sense of Christendom, counted time. It held the high holy holidays. It said what was most important. Its festivals and its bells kind of kept time quite literally for people. But it also then, because it kept time, was able to make significant articulations of what it meant to live a good life. Um, and what it meant to live a good life was to be virtuous, to to participate in the sacraments things like that um so i mean for for a lot of time in our world um we lived in something different than a secular age or we could i think better than even calling it a secular age we could live in an age of belief because of who kept time for us but the big move of modernity is i think is that um modernity for the most part stabs the timekeeper um and it it wants to take over who actually keeps time. And I guess another way to think about this, and this is to kind of draw from Hartmut Rosa, who I've now forced you to read, and you've become a, he's a fanboy. Great. It's, it's really interesting great. stuff. Great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's really interesting. But Rosa's kind of point of thinking about this is like to think about production and reproduction. So think even about kind of marriage, family, and think about like work. And that really happened when the church was keeping time. It really happened intergenerationally. So, um, you know, there's been this whole conversation within the, the church for what, you know, any of us who have any connection to kind of youth ministry. It's been a couple 20 years or so, you know, that we've been talking about the need for intergenerational ministry. And that's been kind of the radical push. And we should continue to push that in our local congregations. We need intergenerational ministry. But usually when we think of intergenerational ministry, we think of the 8 to 88-year-old, you know? Like, if we could just get the 8 to 88-year-old together, sometimes, you know, the 8-month-old to the 88-year-old. Or if our senior citizens could have coffee with my confirmation students. Yeah, we think that. intergenerational ministry, yeah. It is intergenerational. And actually, I think there's something really powerful. Well, there absolutely there, there is. There's something really powerful in that. But yeah, so we've th- thought of intergenerational ministry as like the 8 to 88-year-old. And, and that I think there's something really significant about that, that we should push for that. I've probably advocated for something like that more than anyone 
or as much as anyone else through my relational youth ministry stuff in my early part of my career and stuff like that. But I don't know that that's radical enough because if you go back even to the early church or even medieval Christendom, to say intergenerational was to include multiple generations over hundreds of years. So even people that have passed away, it wasn't yes. just living yeah, people. Yeah. yeah, So, you know, dare we seem really uncool and quote Coldplay in the song, I think it's in one of those mid-albums of their career when he sings, the dead are not dead, they're just living in my head. For the church, I mean, the dead were not dead. They were living in the graveyard right right outside the door. You know, like they yeah. were still there. They needed to be buried in the churchyard because we still needed to worship with them. And all of us were in the present who were waiting for the return of Christ. So the present was an incredibly long thing. I mean, the present existed for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, um, and now we don't even have that. I mean, you think about our, not even our mega churches, but just any church that's in a suburb anywhere, or even, a, even a city church, you know, so you're thinking even in the 20th century, these churches, there's, there's no graveyard. This is terrible. So there's a church where I live and it's, it's an older church and they have the cemetery in their front lawn. So as you walk into church, you have to pass through the cemetery. And I, I've caught myself thinking, oh, man, that would be a bummer like for new members to like have to walk <laughs> through the graveyard to come in. You know? Right. But you, you think about it in a different way. Like you should have to walk through this because you only have faith because these people passed on the faith and taught the faith and were faithful. I mean, you, you see the good angle of the veneration of the saints here is that we never practice the faith alone. I mean, this is a historical thing that needs other people that that's bound in a, in a, in a cloud of witnesses of a community. So to actually have to walk through the graveyard to get to the front door is deeply symbolic of the way Christian faith was imagined before. Now we have none of that. So both production and reproduction, both work and family or work even in sex, were bound together and were really bound in the church keeping time over these and, and overseeing them. And the present was this incredibly long thing. The, cre- the present was, you know, anyone who was waiting for the return of Christ. I mean, that's a long time to be in the present, you know. So, But you would feel like someone from 500 years ago, was they were still leading you. And, you know, before the Reformation, this veneration of the saints, these, these people were, were with you, helping you through, helping you avoid evil, helping you live virtuously. But modernity has no real patience for particularly production and reproduction being connected. So we try to separate those things out. And, you know, eventually industrialization separates those things out. But we get a new timekeeper. And the new timekeeper, I don't know, you know, pretty much American French Revolution here. Um, so, you know, 18th century. Um, you're, you're, the new timekeeper is the state. And the state keeps time. Um, and, and the state's in, in, in charge uh, of keeping time for us. And then that shrinks the present now the present isn't multiple generations but it's generational so the present's now a generation of time um and that's long that's that's long enough in in many ways so now the present becomes one lifetime side note here which is i think really important for us is that the denomination or denominational ism really is a form of religion created for generational time like, for instance, the denomination works really well 
and it functions really well and we've historically seen is really strong when people have a certain imagination of time as one generation so you're going to move into your community you're going to become a member of this church you're going to you're going to work 40 50 years at the same corporation you're going to retire with a gold watch you're going to be married to one person you're going to probably live in that house most of your life um, the the denom- denominational christianity does very well in in that circumstance yeah it, the structures do well and in, in, in things like that but that's not where we're at now so we click things forward and sometime after the um, really the late 1960s and we've talked so much about the age of authenticity and things like that one of the things that happens in the late 19, 1960s it becomes a revolution there's a revolution on who keeps time and so essentially you have a generation come of age <clears throat> that's born after the war who does not think that good life can be moving to the suburbs, raising kids, having one lover in one job your whole life. That cannot be the good life. So they attack the good life held by the state. And the way to attack it is to revolt against the very timekeeper themselves, call them corrupt, overthrow them. It was, I think, a move on the government, but as much it was a move on the timekeeper in the sense, well, because it was on the government, it was on the timekeeper, but it was a sense of of, uh, of the good life. And so then we click forward, and sometime into the 70s and the 80s, this ramps up, and now the present gets compressed, and we're no longer thinking of the present as a generation, but we're thinking of it as not intergenerational, not generational, but as intragenerational. Now, if you go fast enough, and you should actually have the freedom to live multiple lives. Well, and the other thing, and I know we both love this show but that kind of sounds like the trajectory of don draper too oh yeah on Mad Men, where he starts off as like the 1950s business guy in a suit and then spoiler by the end of the show he's you know meditating on a hill and he's cast off his whole life and yeah comes up with the coke ad and right yeah and, and don draper multiple times kind of throws throws i mean he starts like well first of all i mean don draper is supposedly outside the good life you know, like when he, what's his real? I can't remember his real name. His real name is uh, Dick Whitman. Dick Whitman, man, you are an encyclopedia. That's one of my favorite shows so of he, all time. So when he's Dick Whitman, he's outside of any kind of sense of the good life at all, right? right. Like he's, I don't know, in the backwoods of. Somewhere. Well, his yeah, his mom. Well, he grew up in a in a whorehouse. His, yeah, right, his mom right. was the yeah. uh, prostitute and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. um and, and then he he takes on the Don Draper name and moves into the suburbs and like. Long Island or Jersey or whatever outside of New York City and then does end up kind of living multiple lives even at the very beginning of that show but can't but but in many ways cannot explicitly live those out they're right hidden. and then by the time the, mo- the show moves into the 60s and even to the late 60s now he can kind of embrace these multiple these multiple lives so the, in some ways the, the Mad Men show is this movement from and we even see this in like the news like the little bits they do of the Kennedy election, like where they, you know, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They do, do ads for for these folks and stuff. Um, we do kind of have this sense of a new timekeeper coming about. And I think what happens is after the the the, the youth 
movement, youth revolution of, of the late 1960s, the state still gets to govern, but they no longer hold the kind of oversight of what the good life is. And that becomes then a fiefdom. Uh, the, we get a fiefdom of new timekeepers. And that becomes things like Hollywood, um, things like Madison Avenue. I mean, yeah. in, in many ways, Don Draper gets to, gets to keep time. Um, you know, and then and, and Wall Street and things like that keep keep time for us uh, all the way till you know, in the 80s and MTV and things like that. Are, we're really keeping time of what is the good life. But that all changed in the late, late 90s, early 2000s. It became Revenge of the Nerds. Mm-hmm. And the nerds, who were just one of the conglomerates in this little place called, uh, little place that eventually we called Silicon Valley, took over everyone's business. So what Silicon Valley then does is Silicon Valley has a certain conception of what the good life is and Silicon Valley is able to really both respond to and push forward this sense that if you move fast enough, you can live multiple lives. Um, that this becomes the, the good, the good life is, is to go fast enough to do this. So then inner innovation becomes a really high good because innovation becomes the recreation of the new and the present itself becomes shrunk so the present now is so short that it's not even a lifetime and silicon valley becomes the timekeeper that keeps pushing us towards the new and always getting to the new from my vantage point it sounds like what you're saying is that when the church was the timekeeper our whole orientation about how we saw things went backwards in a way. In a way, for from, sure. At least from how we sit yes. now. They wouldn't have called it that probably then, but we see that now backwards. You're talking about the generations. you got the cemetery and the church, you know, whereas now Silicon Valley wants us to look forward and look for the new. Always. We're obsessed with the new. Um, you know, every all those nerds on the Internet get so excited when Apple has their annual event and they come right. up with, like, the new iPhone that really isn't that much different than the old. I mean, it's just... Sure. That's 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 it. So sure. basically, we've shifted as a, a human species how we look. Yeah, like one of the things I say in in this book that you can find here that will come out in twenty twenty one, but is that we're weird culture. Is it a new book coming in the future? Uh, in the future, the new the new book in the future. So yeah, that was Great. almost lost on me. I know. See how ingrained Gotta keep up. Gotta keep up. I know. Um, but you know, we're this weird culture where we used to be like the dead are not dead. They're still living in our practices. They're still with us. Now we've almost flipped that completely where we almost say the living are already dead. So like, you know, you get to a certain age and you're worthless. Okay. Boomer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, okay. Boomer here. There you go. Like yep. there's, there, this is a culture because of the way that innovation, the movement towards the new goes, we have a very hard time with wisdom. Yeah. You know, like we're very good at innovation, but not so good at wisdom. Right. There's a great book by this guy named uh, Harris, I think his name is. And I can't say the name of the, the title of the book. I always mispronounce. It's like Juvenance or something like that. Okay. And he, he teaches at Stanford. And he, he actually wrote a really great review on the first season of Silicon Valley, the, t- the HBO show when it came out. Yeah. Um, because that show, too, is just prophetically genius because it just calls Silicon Valley on its own kind of religious perspectives and its own anti kind of Christian anti um, 
what we would call axle religion perspectives. Well, like, there's even the episode where there's a guy working for the company who is a Christian, and they're like, "Dude, you you can't say." No, that. you know what it is? It's that their Pied Piper is setting up their network, and they're getting other people on their network. And there is a gay guy who is starting a dating app, and then he admits to to, That's to what, Richard yeah, yeah. that he's a Christian. And they're like, oh, no, can we put a Christian? Well, they don't know if they can put a Christian on their dating dating app. Like, you know, it like just totally plays with this. And then um, I think what what's uh, Jared, who is ri- Richard's yeah. like assistants, yeah. like um, like in, Silic- in Silicon Valley. I mean, you could put LSD on your cereal and people will call you brave. You can be in into polyamory and people will call you brave. There's just one thing you can't be. You can't be a Christian. Which makes all sorts of sense because it's a different conception of time and of the future. Yes. And Christianity does really believe in this kind of apocalyptic sense of the advent of the future coming. That it isn't even embedded in human beings innovating and acting in a certain way. It, you know, in, in certain Protestant perspectives, you have to be rendered passive. Yeah. Well, no pun intended. Like, just th- their, their conception of time does not compute with the way Silicon Valley sees it. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So anyhow, that that was a long way of, of talking about this guy Harris, who's written this book, Juvenance, or something like that. But he in, in that in that review of of Silicon Valley, the show, he says um, his basic thing is that Silicon Valley is actually quite boring. Live, you know, teaching in Stanford. The right? show is no, he oh, loves the, the, the show. The Silicon Valley Silicon itself, Valley itself okay. is quite boring, and his point is that it has no sense of wisdom at all. It's all about the new. And then he traces in this really kind of beautiful way that any true movements that had a huge impact within human history have always been a balancing of the new and the old and the new. It's been about the new and the old. So he even does things like with Paul's epistles, where Paul is always like saying, like Christian, this new movement of Christians, this this thing called the way. These these Christian people remember that they are the continuation of Moses and of Israel. That there's no way that Paul's ever trying to disembed the Christian experience from the experience of Israel. And at the same time, he has all sorts of things like Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is the new Adam. So there's both the balancing of the look back and the look forward. Um, but just be what we're discovering culturally is just because you have literally access to all the information on the planet, pretty much, um, it has not made us any smarter. Um, it, and, and it, or we, it for sure hasn't made us wiser in any way. Um, so, you know, we're, you, you could say we're a little bit in a crisis of, of wisdom. And yeah. so, so the perspective becomes, what is the church for? And does the church move at the, at the speed of wisdom or does it move at the speed of innovation? And maybe it moves somehow between those two things, um, and should move between those two things. But we have to be very careful because the timekeeper of Silicon Valley has no patience and in some sense wants to, um, dare we say, um, crucify wisdom. That this slow route is not a route that they want to go. New Time Religion is a podcast featuring Dr. Andrew Root, which is produced by me, Derek Tronsgaard. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend or two about our show. 
You can find more of Andy's books on his website, andrewroot.org, and you can order them on Amazon. His most recent series focuses on Charles Taylor's work in the secular age, and his new book, The Pastor in a Secular Age, is out now. New Time Religion is a production of the Alter Guild Podcast Network, and you can check them out at alterguild.org for more great shows. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time for another round of New Time Religion.